Holy God, take my words and speak through them. Take our hearts and fill them with your love, that we may grow ever closer to you. Amen. Amen. I think I've said it to you several, if not many, times before, that something we really like to do in our house is to watch films all together as a family. I don't usually get to choose. The children and John do most of that, which means generally we end up watching something about superheroes. There have been an awful lot of Marvel films viewed in our house lately. But last week, I did insist on choosing the film. It's one I'd heard people talking about and I'd wanted to watch, and it was called The Dig. It was a really good film. If you get the chance to watch it, I do recommend it. It is much better than the latest Wonder Woman film, I can tell you. <laughs> Evie won't be happy I said that. <laughs> the Dig tells the story of the excavation of the main burial mound at Sutton Hoo and the discovery there of a almost complete frame of an Anglo-Saxon ship from the 7th century. It was buried just beneath the soil all those years. It took my imagination, partly because I've always loved archaeology, but also because as I watched it, there was a sense throughout of standing on the edge of mystery. Indeed, it is a mystery that is never fully resolved. In fact, even after 80 years and all the excavations that have happened there since, we still don't know everything there is to know about that site. For years and years, people thought that it perhaps wasn't actually a burial ship at all, but rather a memorial, because when they looked at the grave goods, there was only a human-shaped space in amongst them. It is only with recent chemical analysis advancements that they have been able to say for sure that someone was indeed buried there. There have been lots of speculations over the years about who it might have been, which king or which relation of a king, but nothing definitive can ever be proved, so we will never, ever know. We will always stand on the outside, looking in, and get just a glimpse of that mystery. Now, the film, as I said, was really good. Lots of drama, lots about relationships, and I imagine that there was a fair bit of poetic license taken in the retelling. But nonetheless, as the story unfolds on the screen, it is not just about the discovery of a ship in the soil. It is a revealing of human mystery that goes to the heart of what it is to be human. It's the story of many people's lives. And one, in particular, finds that her sense of impending mortality is brought into sharp focus against the backdrop of the burial ship. In uncovering the secrets of the past, she manages somehow to place her story within a bigger story and cope with events to come in her future. In what I think was one of the most beautiful moments of the film, someone lays down in the ship, recreating the pose of the person who might have been buried there. One story, quite literally embedded in a bigger story. It's a story of highs and lows, of sorrow and elation, of mystery revealed, work well done, and of legacy. All themes that I have found contained within all our readings today. And so as we turn to our gospel reading, 
we find ourselves once more at the scene of the Transfiguration. It's always the reading for the Sunday before Lent. And over the last few weeks since Christmas, we've really gone back and forth throughout Jesus' life. We've had all those weeks of Epiphany. You might remember that I talked about the baby bookends with the adult Jesus sandwiched in the middle, the events of his infancy at the beginning and the end of the season. We have found ourselves moving back and forth through the weeks. And it's quite odd, really, I find, because Ruth and I have been telling you throughout the whole season of Epiphany that it's all about the revealing, the revelation of who Jesus is. And yet, here we come, two weeks after Epiphany has ended, to what is perhaps the biggest revelation in the New Testament, this side of Easter. It is a mountaintop moment, quite literally, for Jesus and for his disciples who are up there with him. In fact, we might like to think of it as a mountaintop moment in our church year. At Christmas, we saw the birth of Jesus. We have seen his glory revealed through his childhood and his adulthood, through his first miracles throughout Epiphany. And we've reached the moment on the last Sunday before Lent and the Transfiguration. We have reached the mountaintop with Jesus, just in time to descend back into the valley of Lent and Holy Week before reaching rock bottom on Good Friday. And so as we walk through the church year, we too bring our lives and our experiences into step with a much bigger story. I recently preached about Jesus' baptism and how it had a twin passage in Jesus' crucifixion in Mark's Gospel. But here, today's Gospel is more or less right in the middle between those two passages. And it actually turns out that it was triplets, not twins. <laughs> I wonder if you picked up on the echo. This time, the heavens aren't torn apart, but rather a cloud comes to overshadow Jesus and his friends. But there's that voice again. This is my son, the beloved. Once again, we see God claiming Jesus as God's own. At his baptism, at least in Mark's version, I talked a few weeks ago about who that voice was really for. I suggested it was for Jesus himself. But this time, I think it's definitely for his disciples' benefit. In chapter one, at the baptism, God addresses Jesus, you are my dear son, with whom I am well pleased. But here, at the transfiguration in chapter nine, we get instead, this is my dear son. Now, whatever Jesus, Moses and Elijah had to say to each other, we will never know. Yet another example of standing on the edge of mystery looking in, not knowing everything that we would like to. How often is that our own experience? And what about the reaction of the disciples that were with him? Well, we're told in the script, they were terrified. I'm not surprised, really. Now, I've always wondered what Peter was babbling on about when he starts suggesting building those three dwellings for Jesus, Elijah and Moses. But I think really that he is probably just covering his fear, covering his confusion, 
and he's trying to do something, anything at all, that is even slightly helpful. Does that sound familiar to you? When faced with a difficult situation, we usually feel we have to do something. We have to fix it. We have to make ourselves busy, even if it's just making someone a cup of tea. But back to that voice. That voice that cuts through all of Peter's attempted action and busyness. This is my own dear son, it says. It's complete confirmation of what Peter himself has declared right at the end of chapter 8. In that passage, when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter replies firmly, the Messiah. Perhaps that is Peter's mountaintop moment of revelation. When he makes that reply to Jesus, clearly, you are the Messiah. But then, poor Peter is immediately plunged back into the valley again. When Jesus starts talking about his impending suffering and death, that's not what Peter wants to hear at all. And Jesus rebukes him very strongly when he tries to stop him saying it. And then we turn the page just almost to the next passage and we are back at a mountaintop again, witnessing the transfiguration. So back to that voice. This is my dear son. Listen to him. It goes on. Stop, Peter. Listen. It's not enough to know that Jesus is the Messiah. You must listen. All the glory of God bound up in the reality of human struggle and strife. Because Jesus' fate was pretty much fixed once he challenged the status quo. There was going to be no ending on earth for Jesus other than crucifixion at the hands of the authorities once he had set his face against them. But Jesus turns to face that reality. He accepts it. And right at the end of chapter 8, as he talks to Peter about it, Peter just can't. And yet here, in chapter 9, we see Jesus on the mountaintop, dazzling white. And when it is suddenly all over, despite his knowledge of what is likely to come, Jesus leads his friends back down the mountain and into the valley and eventually on to Jerusalem and to the very cross. And so, as we bring our lives into conversation with this passage, it's worth asking ourselves where our mountaintop moments have been. Those moments where we have realised we have touched something holy. Those moments where we have stood on the edge of mystery and not known all that it contained. Now, in reality, our mountaintop moments might be nowhere near as dramatic as this one here. And so often they are characterised by us not telling anyone about them at all. We just so often can't bring ourselves to. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples to tell no one until later. But as we see elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus saying, don't tell anyone, doesn't usually have very much effect. 
I can imagine that in this instance, the disciples were only too pleased not to have to talk about it. Many of our mountaintop moments are meaningful and far too personal to be shared with ease. I know mine often have been. Because so often we are just getting a glimpse of something. We are standing on an edge of mystery and not understanding. How on earth could we ever put that into words? Peter, James and John didn't obviously forget the events of the Transfiguration. Their account has made it into the three synoptic gospels. There obviously came a point where they did talk about it. And this week I have found myself wondering how much time had passed before they spoke of it. I wonder which one of them spoke first. And I wonder who it was they first told. But don't forget that not all of the 12 disciples were on that mountaintop. Where the other nine were at that moment, we don't know. I wonder if they were a little bit jealous later when they heard of it and perhaps spent years longing for their own mountaintop moment. That's so often how we feel when we hear of others talking of their experience. Why haven't I had that? But then they probably had their own mountaintop experiences too. Maybe they weren't quite as dramatic as the transfiguration recorded in the gospel. Maybe they weren't filled with chariots of fire and whirlwinds like Elijah. Maybe there wasn't a cloud of fire at the top like there was for Moses. But maybe they were quieter, more precious, more private, more akin to Elijah's other experience of finding God in the sound of sheer silence. But whatever experience, it is always reached by going there with Jesus. By our willingness to step out onto that mountain path, by drawing aside a while with Jesus by drawing aside to that place where stillness comes and the noise of the world is hushed and falls away and we can hear that voice once more for ourselves. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I wonder if you can pinpoint a moment in your life when suddenly your doubts seemed to drop away, even just for a moment. A moment when you glimpsed the mystery even as you knew that you didn't understand it. And so as we listen to that voice, we are able once more to be led by Jesus back down into the valley and to continue to walk our path, however hard it may be. And so as we turn from today, from the mountaintop moment of scripture into the valley of Lent, let us spend time this season intentionally drawing aside with Jesus, allowing him to lead us into whatever comes. Amen. Amen.